This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Um, guys, it's so good to be with you today. My name is uh, Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. It's a pleasure to, to be joining you over this live stream. We're still figuring some things out, getting this thing worked out, um, but we... We can just go up here from here, so that's great. Um, I'm happy to report that Ronnie is back. He landed uh, last night in San Juan Airport at 1 a.m., and so he will be back hopefully soon. He's taken a few days just to make sure that he is healthy. He feels great, so that's a, you know, we're not too worried, but I'm um, just trying to cover all our bases here. Um, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series, and we're going to be in John chapter 19. Um, if you would, please turn with me there in your Bibles, or if you have that PDF that we sent out, it's printed there for you. Um, you know, I know that this is an anxious and, um, and trying time for all of us. And where do we have to turn but to our God, our God who loves us and who is absolutely and totally in control? You see, God is not surprised by this coronavirus, not in the least. And in fact, um, in his great wisdom and providence, He's given us a passage today that is incredibly relevant for a time such as this because it speaks of Jesus' compassion and care for his people. And so this week our sermon is going to be a little bit simpler. It's going to be a little bit shorter. We're going to be talking today about Jesus' compassion and our response to that compassion. Very simply, two points, Jesus' compassion and our response. So during, we're about to read God's word right now, and usually what we do is we stand um, to, to kind of declare a reverence for God's word, to respect it, to set it apart. Um, but we're not going to do that today. I'm not going to ask you to do that at home. But if you would, take a moment, and as I read God's word, just prepare your hearts, revere God's word, listen to him. This is him speaking to us, his people, directly. And I would just ask that you would give his word the, the reverence that it's due. This is going to be from John chapter 19, and we're going to be reading verses 23 through 27. Hear now the reading of God's word. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to seize whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. This is God's good word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide Forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. A couple of years ago, um, the founder of Nike, the, the company Nike named Phil Knight, he wrote a book that basically was the biography of, of his company, of Nike. And he write out, writes how he started with this concept in, a, in his garage, and, and it grew into a company, and it, you know, he developed products, and it expanded and grew and evolved into this 
multi-billion dollar company, international, all over the world. It is an icon of, um, of commerce, of, our, of sports, of even our, our very culture. And, and towards the end of the, this book, which I just read a couple weeks ago, he's describing the current corporate campus of Nike, like its current corporate facilities. And, and they're huge and beautiful and so big that they have these, um, they have roads that are, you know, the roads that are called, named after the, the founders. Um, they, they have little, uh, just, it's just this massive campus, beautiful campus. And, and he describes how sometimes the founders, the, you know, the, the original group of guys will come and they will, they'll come on campus. Of course, they're multi, multi-millionaires at this point. And they'll come and, and the interns will just be in awe of these guys. And they'll just ask them all these questions like, hey, you know what, tell me about this time, tell me about this time. And they'll, like, it's all like super romantic for these interns, right? That the, the, the past of the country, that 50 years ago when they were developing different things, when they were just starting out, it's all very romantic. But if you read the book, um, it's actually really interesting because the reality is actually quite the opposite. It was anything but romantic. Um, Phil Knight describes um, stress, sleepless nights. They were on the verge of bankruptcy for years and years. Incredibly painful, uh, incredibly stressful time and honestly painful. Um, for his family as he worked extremely hard. He, he says that um, he would go for these six-mile runs every night because those, those runs would be the only thing that could like, keep the anxiety and stress down. It's like a really difficult time. It was an absolutely not romantic in the moment. And I think sometimes we come to the Bible and we, and we tend to romanticize it. We tend to um, kind of abstract it from its reality. And we particularly do this with the crucifixion. And, what I, and I want to be careful when I say this, but this passage today, it, it refuses to over-spiritualize Jesus' death. Now, it is, it's certainly spiritual. It's very spiritual. But what we see in this passage is that it's very tangible, very real. It's horrific. It's painful. It's, this is happening in history, and it is not romantic. And the way that this passage does this, the way it brings us into the reality is it brings his mom into the situation. It brings Jesus' mother, Mary, into the scene. And I want us to take this moment just to reflect on this passage and try to experience this scene through the eyes of Mary. I mean, this is her firstborn child. Right? She raised this child in her arms. And I think one of the things that we probably fear the most in life is having to bury our own children. Um, and, and maybe you've, if you've entertained that fear at all, it's probably been something like um, a car wreck or a kind of freak disease that happens and we lose a child and it's horrible. But this scene actually is, is a little bit different than that because what Mary is watching is she is watching her son be tortured to death. This is a nightmare that is absolutely and horribly real. And I want us to enter Mary's eyes for a moment, to see this happening before us, to enter her emotional state for a moment, to see what is going on here. It is very real. And Jesus says he's hanging on this cross, and he sees his mother in this state, this state of a certain despair. How does he respond? Look at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold 
your mother. The disciple who Jesus loved is John, Jesus' best friend. And he says, woman, behold your son to John. He says, John, behold your mother. He's asking his best friend to become his mom's surrogate son. Right? He turns the care of his mother over to John, asking him to care for her like he would his own mother. Jesus is being crucified, and yet he takes the time. He takes the time to make sure that his mom is provided for and cared for. Even in his moment of death, in his moment of intense pain, intense torture, Jesus has compassion for the condition of his mother. So here's the question for us today. Is this just a, a scene that we can't relate to because we're not marrying? Is it just a, a son caring for his mom? Or is this an example of how Jesus Christ interacts with us? And the answer is yes. It's both, right? You and I are not married. Like, we're, we are not married. Let's not try to be married. Right? This is a particular act of compassion towards his mother. However, although you and I are not the same as Mary, Jesus Christ is the same. That Jesus is the same Jesus who we know and who we worship and who has compassion on us. And the character that he displays in that moment is the same character that he directs and can, towards us and continues to have today. If you were to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament to Isaiah 42, you would read a prophecy predicting the coming Messiah. And the prophet Isaiah tells the people of Israel that not only will they know the Messiah by what he does, they'll know him by who he is. They'll know him by his character. This is what Isaiah says. He says, he will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the streets. And, and, and here's where I want us to focus. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not clench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Imagine like a, a, a green palm tree branch that has fallen in the road and cars are just driving over it, crushing it with their wheels. And what Isaiah is saying is that the Messiah will be so gentle that he will not break even that fragile leaf. Or think about a candle that's just on its last bit of wax and the, and the flame has died down to its, till it's a little spark there on the, on the wick. And what Isaiah is saying is that the Messiah will be so caring that he will not snuff out even that fragile wick. He will care for it. He will defend. He will show compassion to the weak, to the suffering, to the oppressed. Oppressed. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he does. This has always been who the Messiah will be. I have a friend here in San Juan. He's not someone who goes to Trinity. Um, but he's experienced some incredible hardship over the past uh, 24 months or so. Some really dark things in his church have kind of um, resulted in deep anxiety, um, some depression. But every once in a while he comes to our staff meetings um, just to be with us and to pray with us. And one time, a couple weeks ago I asked him how he was doing. And he said, you know, in the midst of this really hard time, the Lord has been really near to me. He said this that really struck, stuck out to me. He said, I'm learning that we don't need a second chance. We don't need a restart. You see, we often think that our faith is about 
our, our faith is like a second chance. Like God is going to wipe our slate clean and we're going to be able to start over again from a neutral place. And what my friend is saying is, listen, what he's realizing is that he does not need the Lord to erase the hard things in his past or even the hard things in his present. In his present. No, he doesn't need the Lord to press delete on all his pain, his stress, his depression, these things. He does not need those things to be wiped clean. Instead, he needs a God who will be with him in the midst of those hard things. Not a, not a restart, but compassionate companionship in the pain. Now, how, how can Christ, how can Jesus care for us today? Can he, can he, can Christ show us compassion? Can he meet us? Can he be a companion to us in the midst of a global pandemic? And here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Where is Jesus right now? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells the Ephesians, that he prays for them, and he prays that they might know, and this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his, that's Christ's power, towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and is seated on the throne of heaven. And what Paul is concerned for is that he's concerned that the Ephesians would know the greatness of his power that he now directs towards his people. So as Jesus hung on the cross, right, during this moment of great, his moment of weakness, of pain, of death, he, direct, he shows compassion to his mother. Right? He cares for her. He meets her needs in his moment of weakness. And now that he is in absolute power, that power is directed towards the care of his people. When Jesus was at his weakness, he cared for his mother. Now that Jesus is at his most powerful on the throne of heaven, he cares for his people. If Jesus can care while hanging on a cross, how much more can he care when he is on his throne? Now listen, we're trying today to not abstract the scene from the brutal reality of death on a cross. Like his mom is watching him die. And she like, truly needs someone to take care of her when her son dies, is dead. And I also don't want us to... I also don't want us to abstract Christ's compassionate work for us today to make it this like um, unphysical or untemporal thing. And now certainly the Lord does at times miraculously and quickly enter into our situations of pain in our hearts and our bodies and heal them. He certainly does that at times. And we, we should all, our first reaction should always be to turn to the Lord, turn to the Lord, call on his name whenever we experience these things. But the primary or practical way, maybe, maybe the, the most concrete way in which the Lord meets our needs, be, there, be they emotional, be they economic, be they relational, familial, all these things, how does he do that? He primarily does it through his body, the, through his people, the church. 
And this is my second point. We've talked about Christ's compassion. Now we're going to talk about how we respond to Christ's compassion. You see, Mary needs to be taken care of. And Jesus gives her the church. You see, the apostles, they were the fathers of the church. And by giving Mary's care over to the apostle John, Jesus is giving her, her care over to this new community of believers, asking them to care for her. And this, of course, is not something that is just new to the New Testament or new to the church or something. The people of God in the Old Testament, they were called to take care of the weakest in their community. The Lord told them, like, not to pick, for example, not to pick up the grain on the edges of their fields so that the, the weak and the poor and the orphans and the widows could come and collect and still eat. Right? This, is God, this is a command of God. And where does God's command come from? They're not just some abstract decision that God made for no reason. No, they flow out of his very character. So what that means is that Israel was supposed to care for the weak. Why? Because God cares for the weak. Right? They're supposed to reflect him. Now whose character defines the Christian community? Jesus's. His care defines the Christian community. The community of Christ is identified by the compassion of Christ. It is who we are. It is absolutely central to our, our self-understanding. And listen, we are in this moment of, of chaos, fear, darkness, anxiety. And yet we still need to care for the, for the vulnerable. Just like Jesus did in our passage today. Listen, we need to reach out and care for the vulnerable during this coronavirus crisis, right? The poor, the elderly, the anxious, we know who they are, right? We need to take care of each other. That is what we are called to do. You know, in Mark chapter 10, Peter comments that he and the other disciples have left everything. He tells he reminds Jesus almost, hey, we left everything to follow you. And what Jesus responds with is a beautiful promise. He says, listen, if you leave everything to follow me, I will give you a family. I will give you a home. I will give you a place of belonging, provision. And where does Jesus do that? He does it in the church. In this church, in this, sorry, in this passage, the church is becoming Mary's family. And listen, a lot of us here in Puerto Rico, we are absent from our biological family. But the Lord has not left us without a family. He has given us the church. We have to care for each other as we would our own family. It's what Christ calls us to do. Right? The, the, the community of Christ is identified by the compassion of Christ, especially for each other. I had a professor in seminary who would tell us that the more faithful to Scripture our ministry is, the more we will be surrounded by people who need much patience. The more like Jesus you are, the more you will find yourself surrounded by people who need your compassion. And we are so programmed, I mean, this cultural moment, we are so programmed to avoid needy people because we are so busy with ourselves. And what, is, what has always defined Christians throughout the centuries is that when the world was fleeing the latest plague or famine or whatever it is, Christians would move into those places to offer comfort and care and compassion. It is what 
Christians do. And listen, today, as we face this scary, anxious thing that we don't know what to do, we are called by Christ, by his example, because of what he has done for us. We are called to think of others before we think of ourselves. We cannot think primarily of ourselves, even during a time like this. We have to be generous. We have to care. Listen, there are people that will be disproportionately affected by this pandemic. And those people need our compassion. You know, there are people that you know in our church that are anxious, that are worried, that are afraid. We need to care for them as we would our own family. We need to reach out to them, be near to them, let them know that we care. Listen, some of us... Um, there might be people that we employ in our home who work for an hourly wage and are wondering whether or not um, they will be able to make ends meet this month. Maybe this is a time for us as Christians to be generous, to care financially for those in our communities who are particularly vulnerable. The church has to be countercultural. It absolutely has to because our world it so badly needs compassion, and it needs people who will not run away when life gets hard. We as the church need to be a place of compassion, fighting against our cultural moment that says to cut out any relationships that require sacrifice. That cannot be what defines the church. It cannot be what defines Trinity. I'm going to close with this, but C.S. Lewis has an essay in which he asks us to imagine an orchestra playing a complex and beautiful piece of music, right? And all the instruments, the strings, the horns, the percussion, they play perfectly together to bring out the full beauty and power of the music. Now imagine the same piece of music played by a single instrument, like a piano. And while there is a significant gap between the piano and the whole orchestra, the piano can still play the music in such a way that, is recognize, that it is recognizable as the same piece, right? And not only that, but the piano player, by playing the music and practicing over and over and over again, can prepare his or herself to participate in the orchestra. The Christian life is a whole lot like that music played on the piano. We are the piano players preparing to play in the orchestra. And what is the orchestra? In Revelation, the Apostle John, again, this is many years later, he has a vision of heaven. And one of the descriptions that you see of heaven is this, that he, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, the Bible sees the compassion of Jesus coming to a point where he is healed and cared for every single need, every single broken heart, every single disease, every single hungry her stomach. That is the orchestra. And what the church can do in this life is play the piano. We can reflect the orchestra that is the compassion of Christ. We can play music that is recognizable as the compassion of Christ. And as we do so, he himself will prepare us.
to participate in the orchestra that is and will be Christ's love forever. Amen. <laughs>